In all three synoptic gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John, Jesus tells the same parable about four soils. And he says that the gospel, the word of God, is kind of like seed, and it's cast out and it falls on to four different types of people. There's the people who are like the side of the road, where uh, their hearts are hard, they're not open to the word, they're not open to receive the seed of the gospel. And so when the seed is cast there on those types of people, the birds of the air come and pick it up, and it never even gets into their heart. Some of the seed falls on people who are like gravel. And these are the people who love a new idea, and with great zeal, they receive the gospel wholeheartedly. In fact, because there's so many cracks in the gravel, there's not very much resistance to the seed, and it quickly sprouts, and while things are good, these people are all about that good news. But when adversity comes, like the harsh rays of the sunshine, in the parable at least, their, their faith quickly shrivels up and dies. There's no substance to it. There's no roots. They've taken faith to mean blind emotional belief without any kind of maturity. And they find themselves ill-equipped for life, and their faith dies. Some of the seed fell upon the ground that was infested with weeds and thorns and other plants already growing there. This is good soil in that it grows faith, but it's undiscerning soil. It not only grows faith, but it also grows whatever types of seed happen to fall upon it. So it doesn't take long before the weeds and thorns of anxiety, or pleasure, or distractions, or ambitions, any shiny new thing begins to grow up and choke out the faith and fidelity to Jesus. But the fourth type of soil is good and healthy. This is the type of person who receives the word of God and their faith in Jesus grows both deep into the ground and upward to produce fruit. In our story today, Acts 17, 1-15, Luke presents us with two communities who sort of play out the parable of the soils in real time or in history. Paul and his traveling companions have left Philippi, and then they make their way first to Thessalonica and then to Berea. Now, in both communities, there are people who both believe and follow Jesus, and in both communities, there are those who don't come to faith at least not with their first encounter of the gospel. But the difference between these two communities is shocking. The Thessalonians, who don't receive the gospel, were hard of heart and closed to no new ideas. They were motivated by jealousy and defensiveness against the Jesus movement. But the Bereans were different. They were open to listen and to study the scriptures and to test the words of Paul and Silas against their own understanding of God's story. Some believed, but even the ones who didn't believe, Paul calls noble in heart, because at least they made an informed, prayerful, and scriptural decision. Now, as we engage the text today, and every time we consider ideas, whether it's from scripture, or in our media, or in culture, let's be like the Bereans who interpreted the messages they were hearing through the lens of scripture. I'm going to open in a prayer of illumination for us. Living God, we are bombarded with ideas and assumptions, editorials, and even messages from those who claim to speak for you. By the power of your Spirit and by your grace, won't you open us to the hard work of thinking 
and discerning through the scriptures you've given us. We pray specifically that in this preaching moment, you would help us to see what is true and false and choose the path of life that you lay before us. Thank you for the gift of your word. May it be a lamp unto our feet, a light to our path, and our true north in the confusing constellation of life. Amen. Okay, so now that we're resolved to engage the text with openness and discernment of the Bereans, let me lay out two areas of focus for the rest of our time. First, we're going to look at the message that Paul preached to these groups of people. What was the gospel or the word that he was preaching? As I've looked into Paul's message in this passage, I found good news for us as well, and I want to share that with you. So that's the first point that we're going to look at. Second, we're going to explore some of the reasons for resistance in the message today, uh, because I think that we're wrestling with some of those very same things in our own lives and our own culture. And so this is an instructive text for us. Okay, so let's look at the substance of Paul's message by beginning with the obvious, the context. In whatever context you're preaching or preached to, the gospel message stays the same, but the way it's presented should depend a lot on context. The two main elements of context in this story are place and people. The place was Thessalonica, a major city in Macedonia, and it was under Roman control. And like most urban centers in the empire, the only thing that people had as certain in their minds, about their lives at least, was that they were going to die, and they were going to die probably in a painful way. That's just the dismal truth. The average life wasn't very comfortable in the first century. And although some people did live into their 70s and 80s and some even older, the infant mortality rate was so high and the, the mortality rate amongst the impoverished population was so high that the life expectancy of the average person was way down in the 30, late 30s and early 40s. So for those who did live, there were often economic instabilities, fear of social unrest, kind of in the ambient atmosphere all the time. There's a lot of stress and anxiety. Lack of hygiene led people to near constant stomach issues for the, for the vast majority. And the streets in these urban centers often stunk because of open sewers and stagnant water supplies. Scars and disfigurements from broken bones that weren't set properly or wounds that got infected. They were so common that often legal documents would list people's distinguishing scars by a way of proving their identity. The average citizen practiced some form of pagan religion in which their guilt and shame was never really erased or dealt with. Instead, there was an unseen ledger in people's psyche that caused great anxiety. People viewed their gods and goddesses with fear and suspicion, always trying to get on their good side with gifts and sacrifices in hopes that their fickle nature wouldn't all of a sudden turn against them. So that's kind of the general cultural background, but Paul didn't just preach to the general population in the story. He preached specifically at the local synagogue, which meant that he was preaching to Jews who had been displaced from their homeland in Palestine. And he was also preaching to Greeks and Macedonians who had become worshipers of God through that Jewish influence. So there's all of that background information about life being nasty and short and brutish, but there's also this Jewish 
element, right? So what Paul can assume when he's preaching in a synagogue in Thessalonica or in Berea is that the people had a hard life and that they knew the Hebrew scriptures and that they were trying very hard to be faithful to God while living in a foreign land and that they were longing for the Christ, that's the Greek word for Messiah, to come and rescue them from oppression. And so what did Paul preach in this context? Well, first we know he reasoned with them from the scriptures, explaining and giving evidence that the Christ or the Messiah had to suffer and rise again from the dead. Now, that was not a common belief among people at that time. The popular hope was that the Christ would come in victory and would overthrow the enemies and lead the Israelites into the good life. They didn't think of their Messiah as being one who would have to die, and they certainly didn't imagine that he would die on a cross under the Roman um, machine, right? That was the most humiliating way for someone to die. They definitely weren't looking forward to one person being resurrected in the middle of history. The resurrection in Jewish thinking was always a future hope that would happen at the end of the age for all of God's people at the same time. So this is some interesting take on the scripture. So what was Paul preaching? What passages? Well, we can only make educated guesses from his other writings, his other sermons, and his letters to the Thessalonians in particular. Uh, but he's likely referring to passages like Isaiah 53, the prophecy of the suffering servant, or Genesis 22 and the sacrifice of Isaac. Psalm 22, Psalm 110, Daniel 7, these are common allusions or direct references that Paul will preach on and, and, and extrapolate on in other writings. So Paul lays out the case that the scriptures actually point to a Messiah who would take on the sin of the world, be rejected by the world, and that would rise in vindication by the power of God. And that through this Messiah, this Christ, there could be final forgiveness of sin, no more sacrificial system, and that through the resurrection of Christ, there's a whole new way of life available. That's res His resurrection was the foretaste of the new creation in which not only are we made new as individuals, clean and holy with bodies that don't break down, but the system in which we live in will be just and good and honoring to all as we honor God. And then Paul says, that all of this scriptural expectation, the whole story from Genesis through the prophets, is summed up, is fulfilled in Jesus of Nazareth. In a world where death was ever haunting people's homes and families, in a time when diaspora Jews lived under the heavy thumb of the empire, in fact, right around this very time, Jews, all the Jews in Rome were expelled. They were kicked out of the city uh, by edict of the Emperor Claudius. And it's in that setting that Paul is proclaiming things like 1 Thessalonians 4, 13 through 14 to these people. Let me read it for you. And regarding the question, friends, that has come up about what happens to those already dead and buried, we don't want you to be in the dark any longer. First off, you must not carry on over them like people who have nothing to look forward to, as if the grave had the last word. Since Jesus died and broke loose from the grave, God will most certainly bring back to life all those who died in Jesus. 
See, there's great comfort for those people knowing that no matter how hostile the world was, that through faith in Jesus, there is a whole new life, a whole new eternal life in God's new creation awaiting them. Now, you and I may not be living in the same time and circumstances, thank goodness, but but the pandemic and, and the recent um highlight on racial injustice and the political circus that dominates the headlines. It's, it's disoriented us. And I think it's woken us up from the slumber that life is pretty good if you're just in cruise control, that this life is all there is. I mean, it's kind of smacked us in the face like those Batman memes. And the good news is that our guilt and our shame can be forgiven, that failures and pain do not have the last word. What good news that, that Jesus has defeated death and will bring us into his new creation as we place our faith in him. But there's more to Paul's message than theological points to be argued from Scripture. You know, it's been widely and convincingly argued by numerous scholars that when Luke is recording these abbreviated sermons by Paul and Peter in the book of Acts, that they're just the tip of the iceberg, like a, a summary of a much larger teaching. Okay, so, so when Paul says, this Jesus, who I'm proclaiming to you as the Christ, we know that Paul has been spending some time telling the stories of Jesus. The gospel has always been more than a, a set of theological truths. The gospel is about Jesus. So Paul was telling the stories of Jesus' historical life, Jesus' way of teaching and interacting with people, and that would tell people a lot about his kindness and his competence, his gentleness toward the weak, and his wisdom in teaching and confrontation with abusive powers, his humility and his strength and his sacrifice. Jesus is nothing like the gods and goddesses in the Greek and Roman pantheon. He's not mean or spiteful or adulterous or conniving. And Jesus is nothing like our political messiahs, our presidents on either side of the aisle, doesn't really matter, our tech giants who promise to make our lives better at a cost. And Jesus is truly someone worthy of our trust and our respect, our faith, and our obedience. Now, if you were Paul, trying to introduce the person uh, of Jesus to someone who hadn't met him before, maybe had never even really heard true stories about him before, what story from Scripture might you tell? Is there a story about Jesus that has deeply influenced the way that you are getting to know him? I think this could be a great opportunity to get to know others better as well in this moment. So if you're worshiping right now with a family or a group of friends over Zoom or in your living room or wherever you're at, consider pausing the video or podcast uh, to answer that question and maybe share what is a passage about Jesus um, that has really helped you get to know him, that means a lot to you. Okay. So we know that both in Thessalonica and in Berea, there were significant numbers of people who joined the Jesus way. Some were Jews, some were God-fearing Greeks, some were wealthy women, uh, some were wealthy men. I mean, all kinds, all over the place. And they did more, though, than, than just believe in a bunch of doctrines. The text says that they joined the movement. They joined with their lives. Faith in Jesus is a living faith. It involves not just our cognition, not just like believing the right sets of things, but our devotion and our desire. 
And therein lies the controversy. That, that, that's usually why people resist the gospel. It's not that Jesus isn't amazing or that the good news isn't good news. It's that it will upset your whole way of navigating the world. So some of the people from the synagogue who were jealous of Paul's growing uh, following went to the agora, which is the Greek word for the marketplace. And that's where they found some troublemakers. And these kinds of people are actually written about in other extra-biblical texts. They're in a lot of major cities during this time uh, in, in world history. And they were, I mean, we, we know these types of people. They're, the, they're in uh, high unemployment times. They are the youth and young adults who are anxious and angry, and they are hanging out in the marketplace loitering, and they are looking for trouble. And so some of the Jews from the synagogue, they come and seek out these pagans from the market square, and they set off together in this unholy mob to accuse Paul and Silas before the authorities. And so they go to Jason's house. This is a guy who has become a follower of Jesus and was housing Paul and Silas and presumably Timothy. And when the guests weren't there, the mob just says, fine, we're going to drag Jason out before the authorities because he's the host. And in that time period, uh, he could be held responsible for the behavior of his guests. Now, what's fascinating is their argument against Paul and Silas before the city authorities. I, I find just it says a lot. So they say these men have upset the world and they have come here also. They act contrary to the decrees of Caesar, saying that there's another king, Jesus. Now, there's both a lot of truth and some irony in this statement. Like, it's ironic that they claim Paul is upsetting everyone when they're the ones who literally gather a mob and drag a man out of this home in public. This idea of Jesus being king is spot on. In fact, this mob seems to understand the gospel more than a lot of preachers that I hear uh, in our own culture. Okay, and, and I think that's the real rub of resistance. Because a lot of times Christians in the U.S. like to talk about freedom of rights and independence. But Jesus is not just a liberator. He's a king. And while he does set us free from abusive masters, he also then becomes our good and true master. He's a king. And yes, following Jesus will turn the world upside down. I mean, we know from Paul's letter to the Thessalonians that the church there stopped worshiping idols and practicing sexual immorality and engaging in pagan cults. They were going against the social fabric of the Roman and pagan way of life because of following their king, Jesus. But at the same time, both Jesus and Paul seem to teach people uh, to respect the governing authorities where they weren't in conflict with fidelity to God. So Jesus will say, go ahead and pay taxes to Caesar, but make sure God gets his due as well. He's your ultimate allegiance. And Paul would have us pray for the pagan leaders of state and to live peaceably among the people. So you see, following Jesus will turn your world upside down if you're doing it right. If our master was falsely accused and executed for loving the unlovable and telling the truth, then what can we, his disciples, expect life to be like? We may not be able to expect the easy way in life, but we can expect Jesus to be with us to the end. So let's not be afraid to upset the world as we follow Jesus. Let's get into some trouble standing for justice 
and loving fearlessly and opposing corruption. Let's pray for those who persecute and find our hope, not in our success or however the world defines that, but in our faithfulness to the faithful one. Let's respond to this word of God to us through communion.